You're listening to DraftKings Network. Groundbreaking news in the NBA from Shams Charania. Let's just roll the tape here. So, Ant, I know you have a big announcement here for us. What do you want to share with us and the, the rest of the world? Really, I want to let all the Minnesota Timberwolves fans know that I'm just switching from number one to number five this year. And it should be fun. You got a smile on your face. What more has gone into your decision? I mean, five have, just, have, have always been my number. Um, high school, um, college, AAU. It's always been a number, uh, a number to me that I always wanted. And I tried to get it when I when I got drafted. I just couldn't. Uh, my teammate had it. So, I mean, opportunity presented itself this year and I took it. So what kind of sparked it for you in this moment to do it three years into your career? We was just waiting for the right time. Um, this year, I think uh, Cal, Cal likes number one anyway. So I'm going to, he, he can have one and I'm going to take five. Do you think you're going to be a better number five than you've been number one? You become an all-star. Uh, your numbers obviously speak for themselves. Are you going to be a better number five than number one? Uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. A whole different player. Shams is my guy. Shams, friend of the show. But hey, man, like <laughs> that didn't deserve all the pomp and circumstance. Like, all right, you got a big announcement. <laughs> it acted like it was the decision. Like it was Jim Gray. It's August, I mean. I get it. You got to supply those platinum subscribers those diamond packages with something you gotta roll over into the new month i'm a little upset that he didn't wait till august 5th to make this announcement because now he's going back to number five he's announcing it on august 1st kind of feel like he should have waited a few days he did wear number one now he's wearing five so august one is the last day of him being number one mm. august two he becomes five and as lebron's instagram caption let us know the other day Obviously, what's 9 plus 10? 21. Blackjack. I'm sorry, what? Did you guys not see that? Did you guys not see that one? I didn't. What is the math there? Sorry, we don't have numerology Google alerts like you do. Yeah. I apologize. Let me go ahead and share that with you guys here. 9 plus 10, 21, primetime Dion year. And then he's got his ugly shoe in the foreground. <laughs> now, I've been told this was a popular vine Wow! back in the day. Washed king. Yes. Quoting vines. I don't like to think of LeBron as old or older than me because he's not. But this feels like, dog, you're a little older than me, man. <laughs> Come on, man. What are you talking about? June 22nd, 2013. Thanks to the invaluable resource, knowyourmeme.com. 30 million loops. In the vine, a man talks to a boy and claims that he is stupid. After the boy replies that he isn't, then the man asks him, what's 9 plus 10? To which the boy answers, 21. Wow. Nailed it, LeBron. Obscure reference. You win. I think the numbers matter. All numbers matter. <laughs> I think when we talk about Anthony Edwards. Easy, Tom. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Tom's on vacation in the South, and all of a sudden he's got <laughs> all numbers matter. Five matters. One matters. A1 since day one, apparently no longer. Now he's A5, Anthony Edwards. Sometimes you got to cut out the day ones, man. Sometimes they're the most problematic. Shout out to John Morant. But then you change it to five. And guess what that signifies, guys? All five positions on the court. Oh. Five senses. Mm -hmm. Also, yeah. furious five. Five fingers. Five toes. The five fingers come together to form what? A fist. Fist in the air. Like power, tilted at a certain angle. Don't want that. High five. Footlongs from Subway. Five dollars. Maybe he's looking for an endorsement deal. Also, don't forget 50 Laws of Power, which was the sequel to 48 Laws of Power, but 
You knock off the zero because he's a hero. You get five. There's all sorts of different ways you can go about why he would change his number to five. Maybe he's got five more months before he becomes a franchise player. Maybe it's a message to the five on his team, Carl Anthony Towns. Oh, yeah. Wait, no. There's another one there. The five. What's that? Rudy Gobert. Oh. Ooh, that's right. Carl Anthony's the four. That's right. Mm-hmm. And trophy. How many letters are in the word trophy? Six. Right. Five plus one because he's going from one to five. Mm-hmm. I actually blame another five letter name here. Malik Beasley. Uh, Malik Beasley had the number five when Anthony Edwards was drafted. He wanted number five, but Malik Beasley kept him from having number five because that was his jersey number. And so for his rookie season and his second season, Malik Beasley was keeping Anthony Edwards from reaching his full potential. We heard it from Anthony Edwards himself in this interview with Shams. This number change means he's going to be a whole different player. So now. I'm kind of thinking the reason why the Timberwolves have been, I guess, underachieving is because Malik Beasley refused to give up number five so that the star player, the number one overall pick, could have the number that he had at AEU and in high school. Then I realized that Malik Beasley was traded last offseason in the deal. Yeah, there's a deadline, Tom, that you've got to signify to the league, I'm changing my number. And I believe Beasley was offloaded well after the deadline. So he didn't have an opportunity to get it done for last season, but this season he does. But here's my question. Five signifies he's going to be a whole different type of player. I kind of like the type of player he is right now. You don't even know what kind of player he's about to be. I mean, you can't even fathom it. I'm just saying we're going to lose a pretty good player. I mean, he's one of my favorite young players in the league. You saying what I've been watching has just been like a joke, a shadow of what he could be? You said one of your favorite. How about your favorite? Because that's really the potential we're talking about here. Oh. No, he's allowed to have five favorite. A fave five. Shout out to T-Mobile. Fab five. Michigan. Fave five. T-Mobile. I'm trying to get an endorsement deal here, guys. Come on, work with me. Product placement. You know what he said at the end of the video? I don't know if you guys noticed. I was all on board with number five until the last few words of that interview. He said, it's going to be scary. Oh, scary hours. August, the scariest of hours. Uh Where's my NBA? Oh, no. Do you guys remember why the Timberwolves lost game five against the Denver Nuggets? Like the whole NBA could have shifted. I believe it was because Carl Anthony Towns scored five points. Was that five? Okay. He had five fouls. He had five fouls. One of the two. I can't remember what it was. It was something to do with the number five. Well, there was a certain five that was missing in that game. I mean, Malik Beasley, Kyle Anderson, Kyle Anderson, who's swapping numbers with Anthony Edwards, who was number one with San Antonio before he went to Minnesota, Ah. is now going to swap back to number one. There you go. But what happened in game four? Anthony Edwards went to go block DeAndre Jordan's shot and swatted and poked Kyle Anderson directly in his left eye. Kyle Anderson wearing number five missed game five because he had an eye contusion from number one. He only had one eye in game five, but it is time to open your third eye on number five. My assignment, uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. 
Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I am joined by the five-star Illuminati Generals Amin Hassan and producer Anthony Mays, the co-presidents of the Illumination. Fellas, it is August, the dog days of the NBA offseason. Things are pretty quiet now, but there are rumblings, calls for reformation. Some sort of new salary cap study has been published. Mm -hmm. A paper has been published, a professor, an economics professor from the Naval Academy, our friend Scott Kaplan, did his own research to find that, yeah, you might be saying that Damian Lillard and James Harden and Luka Doncic and all these players, LeBron and Steph are overpaid. They make 50, 60 million dollars, but he's arguing that the superstars in today's NBA are underpaid and not just underpaid by a little bit. I mean, how much money are they leaving onto the table according to his economic model? I don't know. LeBron, Steph make around $40 million. I would say like maybe an extra 10. Maybe they should be worth 50 or even 55. Try hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> so we're going to talk to Scott Kaplan about this incredible finding that I am sure LeBron James and Steph Curry would like to know and the rest of the union would not like to know, but we are not worried about all the agenda out there. We are worried about the truth and we will bring it to you later in the program. But first. You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin Hassan. The doc is in. According to the New York Post, Andrew Marchand, there is a new doctor in town, Doc Rivers, hmm. joining the ABC ESPN family and replacing not Jeff Van Gundy, but Mark Jackson, also out at the Worldwide Leader. I guess we can throw in some jokes, mama goes that man, or hand down, man down, or whatever saying you want here for Mark Jackson, but... This is big news. Mama, there goes that man. That's the line. Mama, there goes that man. It is fitting that both of his signature catchphrases could be applied to him getting fired. That's pretty special. Except he had his hand up. Yeah, I saw the statement. A lot of words in there. What is the font size in that one? Eight? I think that was the funniest response I saw. Everyone's like, hey, coach, we're going to miss you. And hey, coach, you're going to miss your analysis. And a lot of mama, there goes that man, whatever. And then there was one response was like, this is me reading your thing. And it's someone squinting. Like, ah, 
<laughs> it was a very kind letter. Three paragraphs, signed, blessings, Mark J. Did not know that's what he goes by, Mark J. I thought it was Jax or Mark or what have you. But a lot of kind words in there, a lot of gratitude expressed to ESPN, Lisa Salters, Mike Breen, Jeff Van Gundy, best producer in the world and friend, Tim Corrigan. Whoa, wait, what? Yeah. First of all, best producer in the world. Settle down. Also, Tim Corrigan, that name is familiar. Our friend Ethan Strauss, when Jeff Van Gundy got fired, he did a little write-up and said that the main reason that it was Jeff Van Gundy that saw the door and not Mark Jackson a month ago was because of Tim Corrigan. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So what happened in between? Month later, it seems like Tim Corrigan's voice has been suppressed. One of the things that I thought was very interesting in the Marshawn piece was that they were wary ESPN of Jeff Van Gundy's desire to return to coaching. Mm. And that this move was supposed to precipitate Jeff moving out of the coaching. And then they also felt like Mark and Doris weren't as good a chemistry fit as Doc and Doris would be. The problem with that, though, is this is like the standard ESPN Red Air. ESPN has this game that they play where they make a statement that people would say, oh, that makes sense, unless you think about it for more than two or three seconds, right? So in the case of, well, Jeff Van Gundy, he's been making these rumblings and he wants to return to coaching. We just didn't feel safe. So we went out and hired Doc Rivers, who's been a coach continuously in this league for the last two decades. A man who this summer, even though he's got two years left and a bunch of money remaining on his deal with Philadelphia, he interviewed for the Phoenix Suns job. That guy's not a flight risk, but Jeff Van Gundy is. It's all kind of screams that weirdness that happens down there in Bristol where they're making decisions all right, but the reasoning that they give is rarely affiliated with the actual decision being made. Spin cycle is what you're talking. They're trying to spin it like, hey, we're get out in front of this. Jeff could have just left us at the altar and taken an NBA job. That's right. When in fact, it doesn't ring true when you hire a guy like Doc, like you said. I was wondering like, hey, I'm hearing that Doris Burke is going to take over for Jeff Van Gundy. And then all this rumor about Doc Rivers. Well, what happens to Mark Jackson? Because Mark Jackson brings not just the coach aspect to the broadcast, but the player mm -hmm. aspect to the broadcast, which Jeff Van Gundy didn't and Doris Burke didn't play in the NBA. So it's like, okay, well, Doc is going to be in the booth and what happens to Mark? And then of course, the news that Doc is coming aboard is promptly announced Mark Jackson is leaving and he found out on Monday that he was leaving the company a month after Jeff Van Gundy. So those who are listening who are like, man, Amin's got a really funny Doc Rivers impression that is actually a, not a Doc Rivers impression. It is an impression of Jamie Foxx's impression of Doc Rivers. That's right. Even though he has that hoarse voice, the raspy voice that sounds like he smoked a pack right before going on air, he's actually a pretty good and experienced broadcaster. He's an excellent broadcaster. If you're just tuning into the league after the you know Kevin Durant era, you might have not known that Doc Rivers was the ABC Finals broadcaster next to Al Michaels for the 2003-2004 season. He was the color guy for the Pistons-Lakers NBA Finals. And not only that, before he took the Orlando job, was it 1999? 99-2000 was when he took the job. Before that, he was doing 
color commentary for Turner and I believe locally for San Antonio. And San Antonio always does this. They always got a former guy that recently played transitions into doing color commentary, the radio or TV, and then they go from there. But the Turner stuff is what got him hired in Orlando to begin with because he was a likable guy. Obviously, he had had a long career in the NBA. He played on great teams. He played for Pat Riley in New York. He played for Bob Hill in San Antonio, but obviously Pop was the general manager at the time. So he'd been around Pop. He played for Mike Fratello in Atlanta. Some really good coaches, including Larry Brown, by the way, when he was with the Clippers. Let's not forget about that. And he was a point guard. And there's always been like this stereotyping that point guards are the extension of the coach on the floor. So you got a guy who was a successful point guard in the league, had a long career, played for some of the great coaches of the day. And now he's calling games nationally and doing a really good job of breaking things down in a way that is very digestible for the audience and for the execs. And so Doc Rivers was one of the first guys I can remember where a team said, you know what? You're going to be our head coach. Doesn't matter that you have zero coaching experience. We're going to hire you because we like your work on TV. Now, obviously, that's been repeated several times over, whether you're talking about Chauncey Billups or you're talking about Steve Kerr, whether you want to talk about Jason Kidd. Well, Jason Kidd didn't do broadcast. He went straight from playing mm. to coaching. But like the idea of, yeah, we kind of liked you before as a player, but then you got on TV and you started talking and we're like, wow, this guy really knows this stuff like that phenomenon. Don't quote me, but I think it started with Doc Rivers. J.J. Reddick, keep your third eye open. Yeah. <laughs> Kenny Smith is another one that's always talked about and bandied about. Well, I think it's interesting in this New York Post story. I'm curious to see if Doc Rivers calls out the officiating at any point. Oh, yeah. That was the interesting part, that the league had issues with Van Gundy because he was critical of officiating and critical of the league. Here's the write-up from uh, Marshawn. He said, Van Gundy was also critical of the NBA and its officiating, which the NBA has expressed disappointment with over the years and even this season, according to sources. However, there is no evidence of an edict from the NBA to make a change. And then later on, he writes, unlike Van Gundy, Burke and Rivers are popular at the league offices. The league has always been a fan of Rivers in the broadcast booth. So I think one of the reasons why Jeff Van Gundy was so refreshing when he came on to the broadcast was because he was willing to talk about the officiating and referees and call them out and hold them accountable on the broadcast. And yes, it does get a little too preachy or grumpy old man at certain times. But I just remember, I mean, when he was on the broadcast, we never really heard that side of the game being discussed in that manner because it was kind of the thing you don't talk about. Yeah. Both the Van Gundy brothers, Stan and Jeff, aren't afraid to voice their kind of displeasures in that way. But at the same time, it's like, I get it from the league standpoint. Again, we've had this conversation before that football does not have a problem where it's official broadcast arms, whether it's the studio shows, whether it's the broadcast crews are actively campaigning against the game. Right. I think there's a happy medium between what Jeff did and being basically a shill holding water, carrying water for the league. I think there's a, a happy medium of like, I can be critical, but I can't make it seem like the game today is awful, right? And that's the big thing. I don't think it's as much criticizing of the, the officials. Those guys are big boys and girls. They can take it. I think it's more of you're telling the fans that the quality of play isn't as good. The style of play isn't as good. The players aren't as tough. And this is a repeated kind of commentary. It's not something like it comes up every once in a while. It's something that he hammers home a lot. 
And from a league standpoint, I could see why they would be upset with that. I mean, I guess maybe I'm partial to Jeff here. I, I don't remember him railing against the players and the quality of the game or like back in my dayism. He does. He does at times for sure. He talks about like, oh man, can you imagine if I told Charles Oakley that he wasn't going to play like, you know, that kind of stuff. It all matters. Look, I'm not saying that he's wrong. It's the load management stuff that I feel like yeah. it's veiled as I think Stan gotten some like Twitter trouble about this, or it became a story about how he said these medical staffs are tripling in size. And yet we're having guys more injured and taking games off. Stan Spitten. Stan Spitten. That's right. There it is. That was the source of that. It does seem to be he's a loose cannon. Jeff Van Gundy would not be afraid to talk about whatever is on his mind. And if there are certain subjects that the league does not want discussed, that could certainly be an incentive. But I do wonder about the money element of these decisions because Jeff Van Gundy mm. and those layoffs a month ago was widely believed to be mostly a financial decision by ESPN and Disney clearing the decks to bring in new talent like Pat McAfee and reorganizing their financial chart. So I wonder about the Doc Rivers versus Mark Jackson financial element. Is Doc too expensive so they have to make another cut or is it simply a market overlap of they do similar things or is it the opposite doc rivers comes cheap because he has 16 million dollars owed to him from philadelphia so doc will do the job for a million mm. or a million and a half or whatever whereas mark given that this is his main gig and has been his main gig for about a decade now it's like yeah i'm not taking any pay cuts here i'm getting my premium yeah, I was just going to ask you, I mean, I'm not familiar with coaching contracts, but is there an offset clause if you take a broadcasting job? I would imagine there are offset clauses with taking another NBA job. If we're paying you $8 million to sit on your ass, okay. Yeah. But if you go and take the Cleveland Cavaliers job, you're making $8 million with them, then we don't have to owe you anything. But if you make 750000 or $2 million at ESPN Turner, does that offset language apply as well? Coaching contracts are not collectively bargained, so it's not a uniform coaching contract like there is mm. with players. But typically, no, there is no offset when you basically go out of industry because you're going from coaching into media. That's why you see a lot of guys when they get fired, what do they do? They work for NBA TV. They work for NFL Network. They work for ESPN because it's like, I'm getting every dime of my money that I'm owed for, but I'm still out there. I'm not disappearing from the public psyche and, and more importantly, from the attention span of billionaire owners who are trying to think of how they can make their teams better. And like, oh, I like that guy. He's on my TV all the time. It sounds like ESPN is going to be able to get Doc Rivers at a bargain, which will, of course, mean that he is delivering value over his salary as a broadcaster. And now I wonder if we could talk to someone a little more educationally credentialed about what value means and how you determine that. Not just educationally credentialed, but also we bandy about the term Illumin Army here a lot, but someone with a military background, I think. That would help us tremendously. Someone we could call my hero academia, perhaps. Or we're talking about one person with a PhD, Doc Rivers, and then to another with a PhD, Scott Kaplan. Coming up next. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. 
Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. What you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. It keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do something really outrageous. I'm gonna tell the truth. Leveling the playing field. The distributional impact of maximum and minimum level contracts on player compensation. That's a lot of big words, but we are going to get some smaller words and words that you can comprehend and get it in a very digestible manner because this has a very, very interesting impact on everything you know about the NBA. Scott Kaplan, assistant professor at the Department of Economics from the United States Naval Academy. Salute to you, sir. Thank you for joining the Illumin Army or the Illuminavi on this program. Illuminavi. Let's go with that for today. Yeah. Good to see you guys. Good to see you too. Thanks for joining us. You are now saying that NBA stars are underpaid. Why? Yeah. And this probably won't come as a big surprise to sort of a savvy basketball audience, but we've got a salary cap in the NBA. Salary cap comes with maximum level contracts and minimum level contracts. So you hear all the time, you know, Jalen Brown recently signing for the super max extension. So there's sort of a maximum amount that a team can pay a player in any given year. And there's a bunch of reasons, you know, why this is the case. The modern salary cap came into place in the mid 80s primarily to preserve competitive balance. So the rich, the wealthy teams, wealthy owners can't just sign an all-star team. And so, you know, what I'm saying that they're underpaid is that the value that they actually deliver to the NBA goes beyond the maximum amount a team can pay them. And that's what this paper aims to explore. I mean, you've thought this for a long time. The max contract is one of the most irrational or things that screw a lot of people in the league that people don't realize. It's something that when it was first argued, the opposite sides argued for and against. The owners are like, we need maximum salaries. These salaries are getting out of control. And the players are like, no, pay us whatever we're worth. And in reality, what the maximum salary did was allowed the players to get the money trickle down, basically, because they got to spend the basketball-related income split one way or another. So a bunch of guys who probably aren't worth that money got salary boosts as a result. And then a bunch of guys who are worth a lot more had to take less. And so owners are now paying people who aren't really responsible for the success either on the court or in the box office what they're worth, but they're paying guys who are worth it a lot less. It's a weird thing and, and it's kind of stuck now. But I guess, Scott, my question for you is when you said like LeBron underpaid, I was like, absolutely. Steph Curry underpaid. Absolutely. You know, Kevin Durant, you sure you got me. Mm-hmm. Then you said Derek Rose. And I was like, huh, because I never really grasped or not grasped. I just didn't even think about it. Like a guy who his productivity absolutely does not call for right. that level of, of salary, but he's moving the needle. So I guess in your findings, how would you describe a guy like Derrick Rose in terms of his value or worth to an NBA team? And I'll jump in here real quick and just say that the study was what, 2017, 18 and 19? Exactly. Two seasons. Yep. So this is from a few seasons ago, but still there are plenty of Derrick Roses in the league that 
fans love and vote for in all-star and buy their jerseys, but they might play 10 minutes a game. I mean, back to your point about this trickle-down thing, I think you know it's important to recognize there's a union here, and so the players are sort of negotiating as a group. And I think part of the reason you see this structure is because the majority of players fall under this trickle-down group, and so you have a lot of the voting power concentrated in that group. So there is some you know, reason to get those players on board, so to speak. Yeah, the Derrick Rose point was interesting. The first thing we need to think about is what drives demands for players, right, from the consumer side. We need to sort of think like an economist and less like a statistician thinking about the productivity of players. And something that the literature has kind of gone back and forth with, not just in not just in basketball, but in all kinds of sports, is this like popularity versus productivity debate. Like, which is the thing that drives demand for the products? And obviously, those two things are very correlated, right? Like, you would imagine that the popular players are also highly productive, which is the case in this study. But you do get sort of these outlier players, like a Derrick Rose, who is only playing 10 minutes a game, not the most productive player. But at the same time, like selling a ton of jerseys, getting a ton of all-star votes due to his success in the past. And so I think in this study, I'm modeling demand for tickets as a function of this popularity, which in the NBA in particular has been found to be the driver of demand from consumers. And so you do get players who might not be the most productive that are economically valuable. And that's what this study is, this result is basically picking up is that Derek Rose is valuable to the league because he's very popular with fans and fans like to see him and buy his jerseys, even though he's sort of past his highly productive days. Quick question. So admittedly, I skimmed the math portions of the paper. That's okay. We'll forgive you. But when you ran the regressions, what had the strongest correlations towards actual value created? The strongest correlation between these independent variables and ticket prices is the quality of the teams that are playing, So, which comes as no surprise. I mean, the better the teams are that are playing, the higher the prices are going to be. So sort of once you control for that, though, once you kind of account for that, and you just look at this productivity versus popularity kind of horse race that we call in economics, we're kind of pinning the two against each other and seeing which dominates in the effect, you get a really strong effect towards the popularity factor. And, and in fact, to give you an example, like in the paper, I'm finding for a 10% increase in the popularity presence in a game, which is measured as the number of total fan all-star votes of players playing a game, for a 10% increase in that in a game, there was like a 1.5% increase in ticket prices. But if you increase you know, the value over a replacement player or the win shares by 10% in a game, the effect is one quarter that size, if that. People are going to buy a ticket to go see Derrick Rose or watch a game, turn it on because, oh, I might get a chance to see Derrick Rose more than, say, if Kyle Anderson is playing. Like Jokic. Or Jokic. There's some really good players that are sort of not on this list. And I think you have to sort of introspect a little bit and say, okay, well, like, would I pay more to go see... Jokic or Derek, I mean, there's sort of this story there. And I think there's a lot of NBA fans who sort of have this sentimental value for a lot of these, like the Kobe. I mean, when Kobe was horribly unproductive, people were going to try and see him. So I think there's definitely some of these players out there, although most of the players on this list, like you were saying, I mean, are highly productive also. What was the most surprising outside of Derek Rose, obviously, I think that jumps off the page for all of us, but the most surprising delta between what he's paid and what he's actually worth? Well, that's a good question. To be honest, I'm not that surprised. I mean, so for example, like Luka Doncic, that's a big delta, but that's a function of the structure with which rookies are paid. Right. And so I think if you're not familiar with that, then you'd be like, wow, like how is Luca only getting paid, you know, six and a half million dollars? That doesn't make sense. But of course, Luca came in as like this established player from the Euro League and things like that. So that delta is big. I mean, the delta between the actual salary and the expected salaries are interesting 
the thing that I was not surprised by, but I learned a lot through this paper was the delta between the expected salary yes. and the actual value to the MBA, Yes, which was something that I really came to explore with this paper a little bit because there's sort of a nuanced difference there. And there's some, there's been some work, you know, back, back when Michael Jordan was with the Bulls about how important is Michael Jordan to the rest of the league. But this sort of delta between their, their expected salary, which is again, paid by the team and is a function of how much revenue the player is generating for their team can be a lot different than the value that they generate for the NBA. So in the case of LeBron, his expected salary is, I find, like $123 million a year. That's a function of how much revenue he brings to the Lakers. But his value to the NBA goes beyond that, right? His value is when he visits Charlotte or other teams on the road. His value is in the national broadcast agreement, which is shared across all teams equally. I mean, so I think the punchline of the story is like the superstars are really subsidizing the league meaningfully. That sort of checks out, I think, with our intuition about some of these top players. So you propose a pool of money that the league office or some other independent central body, governing body, whether it's some Illuminati group in the NBA or basketball Illuminati group. A means checking account. <laughs> <laughs> that will pay back the LeBrons and... Just for people who are listening to this, who haven't heard the numbers in this paper, in 2019, LeBron James' salary was $35 million. Scott's analysis found that the predicted salary for what he drove to the Lakers, his salary should have been $123 million worth of value, $123 million. So almost $100 million more than he was actually paid by the Lakers. But then you look at the value to the overall NBA, and LeBron James's salary or his value to the league should have been $230 million. So he was paid $200 million less than he quote unquote should have based on your analysis. Looking at the other guys on this list, you have Kyrie Irving valued at $154 million to the league. There are no mistakes, no coincidences. Stephen Curry, $223 million. And Derrick Rose, $100 million League value when he was being paid just over a million dollars. Was he a vet minimum player at that point? Yeah, I think he was on Minnesota at that time. So these numbers are huge. But what you're proposing is some way to make up for that difference between the team and the league. And I had never really considered this, but when you present it in the paper, it gave me a lot of consideration. So what is that pool of money that you're proposing? This is a nuanced point, but there's all kinds of incentives in place for players, less so in the NBA than in other sports. But, you know, if you make all NBA or the all-star team or win MVP, you sort of are eligible for additional money. However, that money is paid out by the team. It's a contract-based incentive. And so what I'm proposing here is okay, that's fine. Like the team in the case of the Lakers makes a lot more money from LeBron than they pay him. But this additional Delta we were talking about, that additional value to the NBA is not really captured in those incentives. And so what I'm proposing is something that still aims to preserve competitive balance, which is the entire point of the salary cap, why there's maximum salaries, some would argue in the first place. And the way you can do that is by providing incentives from a central governing body that's sort of not teams competing with one another to pay players more through incentives. And so this will obviously involve some, some revenue restructuring. You know, where does that money come from? Mm. But the general idea is you don't want to change the incentives of players to sort to different teams because we want to maintain the competitive balance that's preserved by the salary cap. But we want to try and narrow the gap between 
the player's actual salary and the value they bring to the NBA. And to be fair, I sh- we should say LeBron makes a lot of money from endorsements, which are a feature of his ability to sort of be on the court and get a lot of press and screen time. I think I have in the paper that even in 2019, if you include the endorsements, LeBron's estimated income was like $94 million. So it's still quite a big gap between his value to the NBA and his salary plus endorsements. But something that allows players to be rewarded for their performance that's sort of team and individual based, but doesn't change the incentives to move across teams is something that we would be looking for as an economist. Scott, I want to ask you, did your results reveal any players that were overpaid? Oh, that was my question, man. You stole my question. Scooped it. Yeah. We could talk about the Derrick Roses and all the extra money he's making, but who's stealing money from the NBA right now? Yeah, who's out here living off the land? Thrifting. <laughs> what I find is that about 15% of players in the analysis are considered appropriately paid or overpaid. We call these the superstar players. 15, yeah, one five. Wow. All players below that are technically, in this analysis, overpaid. Now, I mean, he was bringing this up earlier, which is important. One of the flip sides of having the maximum contract in the NBA is that the players make a pool of revenue that they're sort of collectively bargaining with the owners. That money has to go somewhere. And the money ends up raising the floor of this minimum contract. So does anyone know what the minimum contract is right now in the NBA? It's close to a mil, right? Year zero is like a mil, basically, or 900-some. This was interesting to me. You distinguish, you point out that the vet minimum contract is much higher than probably it would be in a non-CBA world because what we know is that the G League pays their guys $30,000, $40,000. So in order to go from, in baseball, we call it like the quadruple A player, where you're going from triple A to major league baseball is a huge jump in salary and benefits, et cetera. So yeah, of course guys are juicing to get out of the minor leagues, to get into the major leagues. And the incentives are you're making pennies in minors. And of course you're going to figure out any way possible. 20 plus X from going to the G league to an NBA veteran minimum. In this paper, I, I didn't really consider that there's a lot of players who are getting vet minimum contracts that, might otherwise be in the G League making $40,000. And so there's this big gap here that I didn't realize that like there's no players making 100 or 250 or you know $750,000 and maybe some of the vet minimum guys are getting overpaid quote unquote because the other job is $40,000 in the G League. But of course there's international con- European contracts that they could go sign for, but I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I mean I think The key point with that is, do the thought experiment, is the best player in the G League any worse than a vet min guy, right? Or or let's call it the worst player in the NBA. And the answer is, they're basically identical. Uh, And in fact, you might even have some players in the G League who would fit better on an NBA team than some of these vet min guys. So this is a function of the collective bargaining agreement and how players are sharing money amongst themselves. And, And I will say, you know, to be fair to the NBA, I think they've recognized this. And now you have a lot of these two-way contracts where you got somewhere in the middle of the minimum for the vet minimum for the league and then the G League salary, which I think is is great because that's still a significant amount of money that those guys are making. This answer your original question, Anthony. A lot of guys are overpaid. Superstars are subsidizing many of these guys. I mean, the most overpaid guys are going to be the guys who are on a very lucrative contract. Sure, a bad contract that normally exists even without your metric. As a golden bear, I'm thinking back to my good buddy, Alan Crabb. I do not want to... <laughs> <laughs> Alan is a great guy. I love Alan. You know, he got a big deal from the Blazers, I think. Yep. It's unclear like if he, was, if he was valued over a replacement guy. And so I think you got players that sign big deals, 
in this model don't tend to get a lot of all-star votes, aren't very popular with the fans. Uh, those are going to be the most overpaid. Yeah, so I'm looking at that year. Paul Millsap made $29 million with Denver, and I'm guessing not driving a lot of jersey sales, uh, not driving a lot of all-star votes. Or productivity, by the way. Like, this is the other part of it is, like, for Crab, for Millsap in, that, in those seasons, it's not just that they don't, they don't move the needle financially because, as Scott pointed out earlier, the number one driver is team success. So there's like a roundabout way a Paul Millsap could say, I know I don't sell jerseys. I know I don't you know, get all-star votes, but I impact team success hugely. And that's where I'm helping create value. But the problem is, I think most of us would argue in that season, he wasn't doing that either. Right, Tom? Or, or am, I, am I misremembering Paul Millsap's last big payday? In that season, he was, yeah, he was basically a rotation guy. He wasn't a starter or a full-time. He was a full-time starter, but he averaged 12 and seven that year. I think that's where it comes up. My question to you, Scott, is you said, so 15% are guys that are either appropriately paid or underpaid, right? Right. Of that 15%, how much of those guys are on rookie scale contracts. They're making what they make because of the rookie scale, but they're worth a lot more. There's plenty of rookies. So I think the way I categorize it in the paper is top five picks, just to simplify things. Yeah, I don't have the exact number for you, but there are definitely many. In this analysis, I'm sure there's at least five or 10 here that are going to be considered underpaid. There was a graph that you showed with like red, green, and blue dots. Yeah, And there was a rookie contract player represented by a dot that was like getting four point something million fan all-star votes. That was a huge outlier. Yeah. Who do you think that is? Is that Luca? That's Luca. Yep, exactly. 2018, yeah. Okay. So Luca was one of the most popular players in the NBA, was making only what? Six and a half million I've got here. I guess where I'm going is what you're describing in this paper, in this analysis, the big upshot. Is this just a theoretical model? Because don't you have to get the buy-in from the union to agree to leveling this this so-called economic playing field? Yeah, it's a really complicated problem. So of economics, we would think of this as like a general equilibrium problem because you know you change the pay of superstars in some way. That's going to affect you know how you pay non-superstars. That's going to affect how much revenue the owners are generating. You know, there's actually some other work. Shout out one of my academic colleagues. He actually finds sort of theoretically that. The, the unionizing of the players actually delivers a bargaining power that increases everyone's well-being. And so without the union, actually, you might not even be able to achieve some of the, the numbers that we're seeing here. So that's sort of another take on this. So LeBron needs the union to realize his... In theory, it's helpful. I mean, you know, I hesitate because LeBron's such an outlier. Like, he, I'm sure with, with, without the union, LeBron would, would probably find a way to capitalize on his value. But I think the story that I want to tell is sort of one that maybe is intuitive for a basketball fan, but less intuitive for an economic audience, which is that these highly, highly paid players are actually underpaid, which was sort of, is sort of counterintuitive. You can imagine a different headline, which is like NBA superstars are the most underpaid workers in, in the US or something. <laughs> that probably wouldn't go so well with the economic audience. But the story is sort of there, which is like these guys are, are delivering tremendous value and it's sort of collectively bargained to trickle down away from them. And I just wanted to shed light on kind of what numbers we were talking about. Scott, in any sort of any type of study like this, you're always kind of limited by the data that's available to you. What data do you wish you had that you felt like could have allowed you to explore either deeper lanes or different kind of lanes of thought? Yeah. So one limitation of the study is that I'm looking at the impact of popularity on ticket prices, but 
there's a bunch of other revenue streams in the NBA that are that are obviously affected by presence of superstars. So sort of a, an assumption or an approach I take in this study is to extrapolate that ticket price impact to like the other revenue streams. And, you know, I basically assume that the impact that a star has on ticket prices is proportional to the impact they would have on television viewership. That's obviously a big assumption. And it might be the case that I enjoy watching stars more in person. I'm willing to pay more for a ticket to go watch them than, than I am on TV. Um, you know, same, same to other revenue sources. Um, and so, it, you know, in the ideal sense, it'd be nice to have have data on television viewership, on all the other revenue streams in the NBA, and I could actually measure, estimate the impact of things like popularity on uh, those revenues as well. But those are obviously harder to get a hold of. So we are making some assumptions about those other revenue streams here. Scott, I was going to ask about social media and if you considered bringing in not just a player's following on their own social platforms, but the impact of a John Morant dunk and how that will appear on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and drive value that way. Have you considered that in your research? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I have some other research looking right now at television viewership responses to what we call suspense and surprise that take place during a game. So, you know, high, highly suspenseful moments. Do we see people staying on their TVs more than you know low suspense moments? I think this is a similar question. Like, could could we go to a YouTube clip of of Morant dunking over Pirtle and and sort of use that to like determine Jaws popularity? Kind of putting these things together. That's a good question. I I haven't looked at it. Um, I do think there's a lot of potential research. I don't know if Musk is going to shut this down, but using Twitter uh, or X to to look at uh, followings or likes or or views of clips and connect that to a player's popularity and, and generation. I think especially you know now with streaming and like the way people are watching games, like all those metrics are going to be important to evaluate for how to compensate players appropriately. But if the NBA hasn't figured out a way to monetize social media impressions and engagements, that doesn't matter. No, they would <laughs> they would have to figure that out. That's important. There's a big opportunity there for sure. Another thing I want to ask, can you pull up for me Damian Lillard's Ooh. team salary estimate and the league value estimate? Ooh. Topical, Mr. Havistro. Dame during these two years I'm looking at, let's focus on 2018-19, only received something like a million all-star votes which is to, to sort of contextualize that LeBron, I think, was the leading vote getter in 2018-19 with something like four and a half million all-star votes. Mm -hmm. So because the model basically is directly linking popularity measured through all-star votes to you know, predicted salary and value to the NBA, you know, Dame's predicted salary is something like a quarter of LeBron's because he received something like a quarter of LeBron's all-star votes. So in this case, it's something like $33 million a year. For the Blazers, or is that for the league? That's for the Blazers. To be fair, also, he's he's suffering from, I play in the same conference as Steph Curry, right? Like, if Damian Lillard played in the Eastern Conference, for instance, we could surmise that his all-star votes would be higher because his competition would be less stiff, you know? Mm. In, in essence, someone like Kyrie Irving, who was in the Eastern Conference at the time, enjoys almost like an inflation from being in a less competitive guard environment than the guys that play out West, you know, because of Steph Curry, because of James Harden, because of Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul, three of those four guys are MVPs. That's who he's going up against in essence. You know, one thing to keep in mind too, is the market size really matters for, for all-star votes. I mean, you get, you get players like, for example, on the Lakers or even the Warriors, like who, who are like 
middle middle of the road players who are getting more all star votes than some teams stars. Lonzo Ball selling more jerseys than Damian Lillard that year. And I think that's actually appropriate for this setting because again, we have to sort of think like an economist and not like a a fan who who cares about the productivity of the players. Like Dame goes to the Lakers, he's getting a lot more all star votes, and so it's going to be higher than Alonzo Ball. And so I think we should sort of wait that more because there's a lot more Laker fans in the league than there are Clippers fans. I'll pick on the Clippers. That's where the demand is. Like if people want to watch Lakers, like they're going to want to watch their players in Lakers. And so, yeah, there's a big benefit, I think, to being in a big market when it comes to like being highly popular. So then the question becomes, do superstar players hold an exceeding amount of leverage over their teams because the teams realize in some cases, as you found in this paper, some superstars are being paid hundred million dollars less by the team than they deserve. And so the teams know, okay, we're paying this guy fractions of what he brings to us and to the league. So we can't make him unhappy. We have to serve him at every whim, whatever he wants, because we're getting him at a, at a huge discount. And that incongruity creates this leverage that the players that LeBron has used on teams that KD has used on teams that Hawaii has used on teams. This max contract is creating this Damian Lillard scenario. And you can probably argue like, well, he's getting paid $50 million by the Blazers. How much more surplus should they be paying him at this stage of his career? But if you want players to not be able to leverage their teams as they are in today's NBA, maybe having teams paying them their, their full amount would end that conversation and be like, the team can say, we're paying you $150 million. Shut up, you know? But right now in this scenario, the team says, hey, we need you to play. Hey, man, you're paying me a third of what I bring to this team. I'm going to play when I want. I'm going to demand this sort of team. I'm going to demand these players to come play for me. I'm going to demand certain things on the team playing. I'm going to demand, you know, shoot arounds. They can make these sort of demands because they are making way less than they deserve with the team. I completely agree. And I think the NBA, like this is a sort of the story of free agency, right? Is like superstars twisting the arms of teams to get them to the destination they want. You know, I mean, Harden's been doing this like what for the last three years now. You have to sort of think about the flip side a little bit because let's say you do pay the players like what they're worth. That might come at a cost of a competitive balance, right? You might get the big market teams signing all these superstars and they're all happy, but like the league suffers, like loses a lot of money as a result. It's a good question. Like, I, I don't know if there's a good answer, but I do know the reason probably why you're seeing a lot of these superstar holding their teams hostage is because they know they have leverage. And I think the NBA knows that too. What about eliminating the max contract? but keeping the salary cap. Yeah. Well, so that's kind of like football, right? Like football, that's exactly what they do in the NFL is like there is a salary cap and you can pay an individual player as much as you want. That has its own set of like labor market negotiation yes. issues, right? Like you're, we're hearing a lot about the running back market right now. I mean, and to be clear, football does have a minimum contract level, but it's not nearly as high as the NBA's. Well, more players. And more players, right. So that's part of it. Part of it. There's a, another kind of side to this, which is the bargaining aspect. And I think we shouldn't we shouldn't just diminish how important it is for players to be a cohesive group. Superstars make up a very small proportion of these players. And so in order to get policies that players are in favor of, you really need to have buy-in of the vet men guys. And for that reason, I think that's why we see superstars sort of living with this. But again, like what I propose in the paper, I do think there are some potential ways to narrow this gap 
like the league office can take advantage of. We can't fully narrow the gap without really restructuring things, but I think that there are some points that they could look at. So what would it look like? So like you set aside $100 million to give to superstars who deserve quote unquote more money based on performance metrics. So I think in the paper, you suggest win shares as a possible measuring stick to say, hey, yeah, you only got paid this much, but because you performed, you had 20 win shares or 10 win shares, we're going to give these checks out to these players that achieve that that much. I could see some like pushback on that based on like, oh, like you're basically handing out checks based on some VORP win shares, some goobly gook from an analytics guy. What if we peg that to something else? I could understand yeah. why they would not want that. But then like you get into subjective awards that are voted on by the media or by coaches, the more qualitative awards like all NBA or all star, et cetera, it gets also into conflicts of interest of whether players should be paid based on what media says. I think there are, you know, there are smart people than me that can decide on like what to peg it to. Like maybe it's all-star votes, like maybe it's jersey sales. I don't know. Like maybe it's a combination of a bunch of things. The key point though is that I mean, just like they do with the playoffs, right? Like there's a there's performance pay for players for winning playoff games. Something that I learned recently was that performance pay for players is the same. No matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, if your team wins a playoff round, you get everyone gets the same check. Like This is going to be the same thing as the new in-season tournament coming up. In this case, we should have a pool of money, which is because the league benefits from, from, from these superstars. All the teams benefit. And so there's a pool of money to compensate them that doesn't come from the team. So it's not one team bidding against the other team. I think that creates a, a much different, sort of doesn't level the playing field, so to speak. But I think it helps narrow the gap and it, it it might help with some of this disgruntledness. Like if a player is, I don't know if they care where the money's coming from. I mean, if it comes from someone, it's, it's great. And so I think the NBA has some of the tools as sort of a central governing body to, to take a look at this and what they peg it to. I'm not exactly sure. That's a good question. The analytics folks can weigh in on that, but certainly something that that rewards performance and is maybe less objective than a media vote. Yeah, I just realized, I don't even think it, like, I mean, if you're with the Suns and you knew that if Amari Stoudemire won an MVP, you'd have to pay him more, would you be gunning for him for MVP? Or would you be like, all right, well, if the NBA is picking the check, then I'm absolutely gunning for Amari Stoudemire to win MVP. Because now it falls on your shoulders. It's almost like a more money is coming out of the team's pocket to reward a player for winning an award when if the NBA was doing it, you'd be like more power to him. Well, I think for us, it would have come down to, is he actually the most valuable to us? Right. So if we're just taking their actual careers and what actually happened, let's take the 06, 07 season where Amari was first team all NBA and he was phenomenal. But I think we all knew who was our best player. And so I wouldn't be gunning to pay Ron Dragic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Steve Nash, right? <laughs> so like the false flag, right? If the voters or however it comes in, like, oh, actually, Mars your best player. And we're like, well, actually, it's not. And we, we, we're pretty convinced of the, the opposite. Then that would be problematic. But yes, if the money isn't coming out of us, if it's not coming to any detriment, either to our, from our bank account as a team, or more importantly, the salary cap. Because our, our ability to do things, Steve Nash is making $13 million on his deal with us, right? Because he signed a five-year, $65 million deal and won two MVPs in the first two years of that contract. If the league comes in and says, actually, he's worth $23 million and they pay the $10 million gap, we're all good. But if the league also says, oh, by the way, that new number, even though you're only paying the $13 million portion, 
the 23 is the cap hit, then that becomes problematic because we are basically being penalized of getting a diamond in the rough and being able to use that excess to go out and get more help. That makes sense. Isn't that kind of what happens, you know, like Jalen Brown getting the Supermax, that sort of does handicap the Celtics because part of that additional money he's earning on the on the max is hitting their cap, right? It's like 30, it's going from like 30 to 35%. And so if you restructure it in this way, I think to a means point, you sort of reward teams for finding great players. And Jalen Brown's obviously benefiting all the other teams in the league. He's providing a lot of value to the NBA. There should be a pool of money that comes from all 30 teams that that sort of rewards him for that for that shared value. Maze, we got to come up with a cool name for this body of money, this pool of money. The Rich Get Richer Fund. Yeah, we can do that. I like it. Hey, Scott, I appreciate you coming on here. We're going to work hard to get, uh, speaking of rich, you tagged a bunch of people. Who would you like us to try to get in front of here for you on this paper? Rich Paul, I think you did tag here. Yeah, I've tagged Rich and Mav Carter. Who's the head of the Players Association? Tamika. Tamika. Tamalio. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be cool to talk talk with her. I don't know. Like, I feel like Mark Cuban's kind of guy who'd be interested in this type of thing. I don't know if like an owner. I feel like it's interesting to have different parties because obviously Rich Paul is going to love this paper and be like, of course, my client is super underpaid. Rich gets richer. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That <laughs> that should be his, his nickname. But like the owners, they're sort of on the flip side of this or like the underpaid players. So I'd be kind of interested in what Tamika would have to say because she represents the body. And I, I think this is kind of like the main intra bargaining, like within the player's point that is interesting, like how, how much should that max be basically? And then the men's going to go down as, as a result. And like, when do you lose cohesion? I think that's kind of a cool question. Scott Kaplan, Illuminati, Truth Teller. Thanks so much for joining us. Illuminavi. The Illuminavi is an admiral. Thank you so much. And if you want to go read this paper, go to on X. What is it now? X? Yeah. S Kaplan 92 on Twitter slash X or whatever we're calling it. And you can go find this paper. It is published in the Contemporary Economic Policy Journal. Appreciate you coming by. Thanks, guys. This is super fun. I'm glad Anthony and Amin got their PhDs while we're talking. Tom's probably soon on the way. Always fun to catch up with you guys. the PhD down there in case your viewers will appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, Gee, I mean, come on. I know. I love it. That's the only leg up I have on you guys. (laughs) For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.